0: Welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian communities and cults, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. Well, hey there, failed utopians. Today, I have for you the story of the Helicon Home Colony. It was one of many cooperative living communities in America during the Progressive Era, around the turn of the 20th century. And like many of these alternative communities, it seems to have faded almost completely into obscurity. But the main organizer of this particular experimental community Was the renowned author and muckraking journalist Upton Sinclair, who most famously penned works like The Jungle and Oil, exposing shocking labor, social, and industrial abuses across a career spanning several decades and 90 books, 30 plays, and countless articles as an investigative journalist. He was also the guy behind the famous line, It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. Truer words were never said, and it seems to me these words apply now as much as they ever have. The themes and subjects of Sinclair's writings are as relevant today as they were then. But can we learn anything from the rise and fall of the utopian Helicon home colony, which lasted less than six months And went down in a literal blaze. Born in 1878, Upton Sinclair grew up poor in Baltimore and then New York City with an alcoholic father and puritanical mother. But he was an enthusiastic reader from childhood, and as a teen, he attended the City College of New York and started selling short stories to magazines to earn money. He then entered Columbia University in 1897, reportedly writing dime novels under a pseudonym for income. By his early twenties, he was a college graduate and a starving artist, dubbing himself a penniless rat. He scraped by on freelance journalism work while he chased his ambition of becoming a novelist. He married his first wife, Meta, in 1900, and the next year they had a son who they named David, The first few years were tough, but Upton did complete his first novel, Springtime and Harvest, though he had to end up self-publishing it as he couldn't find any takers for the manuscript. After a few more years and a few more underwhelming novels, Upton hit the big time with a publishing deal for his most famous muckraking novel, The Jungle. Upton's experiences with poverty and class inequality in his formative years had turned him off of capitalism and onto to socialism. And in 1904, the socialist magazine Appeal to Reason assigned him to investigate and write an exposé on working conditions at meatpacking plants. Upton turned what he learned on that assignment into a manuscript that would become The Jungle, published in 1906. In it, he exposed the shocking state of the U.S. meatpacking industry, With disturbing details about animal abuse, unsanitary conditions, and appalling treatment of workers. The book became an immediate bestseller, even finding its way into the hands of President Theodore Roosevelt, who was so affected by it that he invited Upton to the White House, despite Upton's well known socialist views. That same year, Roosevelt signed off on two acts requiring inspection and regulation of the meatpacking industry. Upton Sinclair's true intent with the book had been to draw attention to the plight of poor workers, especially immigrants. But ultimately, it was the public's fears about food safety that galvanized action. He later said, I aimed at America's heart, but I hit it in the stomach. And now we're at the moment you've all been waiting for, because it was the fame and fortune garnered from the jungle that gave Upton the means to start his utopian community, Helicon Home Colony. In fact, he sunk about half the profits from the book into his new venture, an amount of $16,000, which in today's terms would be about half a million dollars. While the commercial success of The Jungle might have changed Upton's pocketbook, it did not change his politics. He was committed to the ideals of socialism, and he had a vision for another way to live. In June 1906, Upton Sinclair advertised his idea for a cooperative home colony in the Independent Magazine and followed that with a New York Times article outlining some of the details. He invited interested parties to apply and soon had about four to 500 interested parties. Meetings of about a 100 people were held in New York City throughout that summer. He later wrote about the people who showed up many persons came, some of them serious, some of them cranks, some of them both. The process of sorting them out was a difficult one and was not accomplished without heartburning. There is no standard test for cranks. But the proceedings continued, the prospective applicants were winnowed down, and details were hashed out through a combination of appointed committees and individual votes. With a few minor modifications, Upton Sinclair's proposed colony was moving forward. Here are the basics. Each person or family becoming a member of the colony would pay a $25 initiation fee, almost $800 in today's money, and each family would continue to pay $25 each month as a membership fee. But not just anyone could join the call for membership applications stipulated that the colony should be open to any white person of good moral character. Sadly, this open racism was in keeping with the Progressive Era movement. Throughout history, we know that social justice reform has often overlooked racial minorities, and this case was no different, even though immigrants were a frequent topic of the muckrakers and Progressive Era intellectuals generally. Returning to the plan for Helicon Home Colony, the group would establish a corporation with stockholders who would raise the capital to purchase a property to house the colony. In this case, a former boys' school in Inglewood, New Jersey, a wealthy suburb not too far from New York. Then the corporation would lease the property to the home colony for a term of three years. The colony would pay for the mortgage in addition to operating expenses. A five-member board of directors would be elected by secret ballot, and they would effectively be in charge of governing the whole enterprise, but the day-to-day details would be left to a board-appointed manager. Notably, women were allowed to hold positions on the board of directors and serve as the appointed manager. In the early 1900s, American society was just beginning to question the rigid social mores of the preceding Victorian era, especially in regard to the strict repressive norms governing family life and particularly gender roles. Women's suffrage wasn't new by any means, but it was finally picking up some steam. As you all know, women finally won full voting rights when three-fourths of the states ratified the 19th Amendment in 1920. So in 1906, let's just say it would have been incredibly easy to shock the mainstream public by trying anything different that remotely upended the so-called natural order of things. Deviation from strict social rules would have been seen as an attack on the very fabric of society and even the stability of America itself. And deviating from the rules was just what Upton Sinclair and his progressive-era intellectual compatriots wanted to do. Upton and his wife Meta had grown frustrated with the constraints of domestic life, with Upton himself chafing at the demands of being a father to a young child and meeting the emotional needs of his wife when he really just wanted to be spending every waking moment writing. And it's probably self-explanatory why Meta, a young housewife and mother of a frequently ill small boy with a husband disinterested in family life and living largely isolated on a farm in New Jersey, might have an interest in communal living with the domestic responsibilities shared among the group, freeing her up to have a little more of a life for herself outside of domestic labor. Again, remember the time frame. While the Victorian era had seen a stunning proliferation of new electric appliances and contraptions to streamline a woman's domestic work, many of them rather insane and dangerous, by the way, domestic work in the early 20th century still involved more of what you or I might call drudgery. Washing machines and vacuums could be found in hotels and hospitals and maybe the homes of the wealthiest Americans, but wouldn't start seeing widespread use in the average home until after the 1920s. Now, one way middle and upper class households had to mitigate this problem was, of course, to employ low-wage servants. However, the servant model didn't suit Upton Sinclair's socialist intellectual framework. Exploitation of low-wage workers was exactly the kind of thing he detested and sought to expose and dismantle as a muckraker. And just in case you need a refresher on the term, muckrakers were investigative journalists in the progressive era who exposed institutional corruption and shone a light on issues like poverty, child labor, dangerous working conditions, monopolies, corporate misdeeds, and a lot more, with the aim to provoke public outrage leading to change. But as you'll observe as we continue with this story, it is full of contradictions. First, the Helicon home colonists weren't actually able to solve the conundrum of their need for free labor from women and or cheap labor from servants. And to be fair, that's a difficult problem we still haven't solved one that was brought painfully to the forefront during the COVID-19 pandemic when an estimated 2 million women in the U.S. alone left the paid workforce for unpaid caregiving responsibilities at home, many of whom previously relied on outside child care provided by some of the lowest paid workers in the country. Muckraking had some overlap with feminism, and Upton Sinclair seemed on board with some feminist ideas of the day, due perhaps in part to his association with feminist Charlotte Perkins Gilman, who had expressed appreciation for his book The Jungle. Gilman herself had written of an island utopia with no men in her 1915 novel Her Land, Charlotte Perkins Gilman's view was that while women's suffrage was essential, it wouldn't be nearly enough, and that economic equality was the thing that could liberate women. She proposed employing a professional class of trained experts to attend to child care and home management, freeing women up to contribute to society in other ways and reach their full human potential. This dovetailed nicely with the progressive movement's ideals of efficiency and using science and reason to construct a new world order. Unfortunately, Gilman never exactly fleshed out how this professionalization of housework and childcare would be achieved in detail. The basic setup for Helicon Home Colony has often been attributed to Gilman's ideas And Upton Sinclair himself promoted her books to those interested in the idea of a home colony. But she herself completely disavowed Upton Sinclair's take on the issue. In fact, she later wrote in her autobiography, Cooperative housekeeping is inherently doomed to failure, and Upton Sinclair's ill-fated Helicon Hall experiment he attributed to my teachings without the least justification. There's more but suffice it to say the association with Helicon Hall irked her. Anyway, the point of contradiction I wanted to make in regard to the feminist component of the colony is that while Upton Sinclair seemed on the surface to espouse and support feminist views generally for the colony, he certainly didn't seem to have much regard for the needs of his actual wife Meta specifically and wasn't known for expressing feminist views in his own work. What he wanted was to not be bothered by Meta's problems, as is evident in his writings about her. And finally, while Upton Sinclair was an avowed socialist, his proposal for the progressive home colony was specifically and purposefully non-socialist. He realized the need for a startup group of wealthier individuals who could get the colony off the ground with an infusion of cash up front. And he expressly stated that lower class day laborers like coal miners would not be considered. As we've run into so many times with groups like this, their socialist aspirations and ideologies seem to inevitably fall victim to the reality of a need for cash to keep their operations going. Upton also indicated in attracting prospective colonists that if enough members joined, the colony could also include concert and lecture halls, a gymnasium and recreation areas, libraries, and much more. In short, in spite of his socialist mores, he seemed to view his utopia as a place where middle-class artists, writers, and intellectuals would be free to work while others attended to -to day-to-day matters without having to deal with the servant problem or leave their unhappy wives in domestic slavery. It's probably important to note that Upton Sinclair didn't consider the fact that he and Meta's unhappy marriage and home life didn't reflect everyone's experience. He wrote in his autobiography that it did not occur to him that not every home might be as unhappy as his own. If anyone had suggested the idea to him, he would have said that no one should be happy in a backward way of life and he would have tried to make them unhappy by his arguments. In October 1906, the first 30 colonists, mostly assorted artists and intellectuals, moved into the Inglewood property and over the next few months, the population expanded to about 60 people, including 15 or so children. Once things were in operation, of course, the hard work of actually figuring out how it would all work began. They were able to streamline some things a bit by buying supplies in bulk, preparing and serving meals mess hall style, and in some cases, investing in labor-saving machines. But they still had a servant problem. The highly trained professionals they envisioned for childcare and housekeeping duties could not be found in significant numbers or perhaps didn't exist. And the mainly intellectual members of the colony were averse to exploiting low wage workers for the required work. Ultimately, the colony settled on some compromises here. Some of the mothers at the colony took turns supervising the children, for which they were compensated with a reduction to their family's $25 monthly membership fee. Notably, none of the fathers had childcare duties. Still, this communal raising of children was particularly strange and galling to the public, and was more or less considered an affront to civilized society at best, and damaging to the children at worst. But the Helicon members considered the childcare system to be one of the most successful components of their operation. The colony also enlisted the services of college students, who they hoped would be lured by their idealism and also be of sufficiently respectable class to not be considered servants, even though they were carrying out the menial tasks of the colony. Two of these college students included the future Nobel Prize winner Sinclair Lewis and the poet Alan Updike, who were roommates at Yale before dropping out. The two found that the work at the colony didn't suit them and left within a month. They submitted a satirical article making fun of Helicon Hall to the New York Sun called Two Yale Men in Utopia, which kicked off a media spotlight on the colony, much to Upton Sinclair's chagrin. Yellow journalism was at its height around this time, something the muckrakers set out to expose, incidentally, and the papers and magazines of New York were merciless in their coverage of the colony. The New York Times ran the headline, Helicon Hall has taken two bloomers with the implication being that women were roaming the grounds in bloomers, which somehow equated in people's minds with some kind of radical free-love sextopia, which was far from the truth, and if you've ever seen photos of women in bloomers, you'll know what I mean. But if that scenario sounds weirdly familiar, you're probably thinking of the Oneida community, which I covered way back in episode 6 of Failed Utopia. Another newspaper ran a false story about a police raid at Helicon Hall to stop free love practices, and Upton Sinclair actually sued that paper and won. Upton Sinclair would later write The Brass Check, in which he took American newspapers to task even devoting a chapter of the book to the inaccurate coverage of Helicon Hall. So the colony earned a reputation for being sexually permissive but was that reputation entirely undeserved? Reportedly not. Some colonists were sympathetic to some of the writers of the day, like Edward Carpenter and H.G. Wells, who wrote of more open relationships. On the other hand, some of the reported radically open new lifestyles included things like women smoking in public. So, you know, it's all about the context it's important to remember just how extremely easy it would have been to offend the sensibilities of mainstream society at the time. The members of Helicon Home Colony were mainly socialist, though their motivations for joining varied. Some were interested in taking part in a novel experiment as an adventure. Some hoped to find the company stimulating a la an artist colony Some, like Upton and Medicine Clare, wished to be freed up from domestic burdens by cooperative living. And some wanted to prove that this new way of living was possible and preferable as an example to hold out to the rest of society. Though it's worth noting that these ideas about communal living only seemed new and radical in comparison to the extreme emphasis on the nuclear family during the Victorian age. In traditional societies, Of course, everything was done communally, and in some cultures, it still is. Ultimately, we may never know how well Helicon Home Colony might have done had they had the time for more trial and error in devising their system. In the early morning hours of March sixteenth, nineteen 1907, less than six months after the first members arrived, Helicon Hall burned to the ground. Everyone escaped the blaze except a carpenter who was reportedly too drunk to escape. This is a passage about the fire from Upton Sinclair's autobiography. The Helicon home colony came to an end abruptly at three o'clock on a Sunday morning. The first warning I received of its doom was a sound as of enormous hammers smashing in the doors of the building. I was told afterward that it was superheated air in plastered walls, blowing out sections of the walls. I smelled smoke and leapt out of bed. My sleeping room was in a tower, and I had to go down a ladder to my study below. There was a door leading to a balcony, which ran all the way around the inside of a court three stories above the ground. I opened the door, and a mass of black smoke hit me. It seemed really solid, with heavy black flakes of soot. I shouted fire and ran out on the balcony and up to the front, where there was a studio made over into sleeping quarters for eight or ten of our colony workers. I ran through this place shouting to awaken the sleepers, but got no response. Apparently everybody had got out, without stopping to warn me. The next day, I learned that one man had been left behind, a stranger who had been working for us as a carpenter. He had been drinking the night before and paid for it with his life. When I came back from the studio to the balcony, the flames were sweeping over it in a furious blast. If I live to be a hundred, I shall never forget that sensation. It was like a demon hand sweeping over me. It took all the hair from one side of my head and a part of my nightshirt. I escaped by crouching against the wall, stooping low and running fast. Fortunately, the stairs were not yet in flames. So I got down into the central court, which was full of broken glass and burning brands, not very kind to my bare feet. I ran to the children's quarters and made sure they were all out. Then I ran outside and tried to stop the fall of two ladies who had to jump from windows of the second story. Harder to stop the fall of human bodies than I would have imagined. We stood in the snow and watched our beautiful utopia flame and roar until it crashed in and died away to a dull glow. Then we went into the homes of our fashionable neighbors, who hadn't known quite what to make of us in our success, but were kind to us in our failure. They fitted us out with their old clothes, for hardly anyone had saved a stitch. I had the soles of my feet cleaned out by a surgeon and was driven to New York to stay with my friends the Wilshers for a couple of days. An odd sensation to realize that you do not own even a comb or a toothbrush, only half a nightshirt. Some manuscripts were in the hands of publishers, so I was more fortunate than others of my friends. End quote. Englewood City officials conducted an investigation into the fire, but no cause was established, and it seemed that the focus of investigation was more on the details of life at Helicon Home Colony than the fire itself. The officials even accused the colony of burning down their own building for insurance money. Upton Sinclair lost some of his work in the fire, and he speculated that the fire could have been set intentionally to destroy what he was working on, though there's no evidence for that theory either. After the fire, everyone moved on. Upton Sinclair went on to write many more works, some of them commercial successes and some not. In 1911, he divorced from Meta when she caught the feels for the vagabond poet Harry Kemp and left Upton for him. Upton remarried a couple of years later, and they moved to California in the 1920s, where he founded the California chapter of the ACLU and ran unsuccessfully for Congress twice on the Socialist Party ticket. It was during this time that he wrote some of his most acclaimed work including 1927's Oil, which you might know as the 2007 award-winning film There Will Be Blood. In 1934, he ran for governor of California as a Democrat, and after facing a brutal propaganda campaign against him, he was again unsuccessful. After this defeat, he abandoned politics and returned to writing until his death in 1968 at age 90. Whatever you think of Helicon Home Colony, Upton Sinclair considered it a great success. And in the following years, he tried to regain the utopia he'd lost. He considered starting up a new colony in California called Helicon West, which never came to fruition and also dabbled in other alternative communities in Alabama and Delaware. But he never recaptured the magic. He wrote, I have lived in the future. I have known those wider freedoms and opportunities that the future will grant to all men and women. Now, by harsh fate, I have been seized and dragged back into a lower order of existence and commanded to spend the balance of my days therein. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help other people find it. Tell your friends about it. And if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link at the bottom of the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website failedutopia.com or the Facebook page at Pod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time.